Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, you're listening to The Future of Media Explained with me, Prescott Editor-in-Chief Dominic Ponsford. And this week, we are learning all about future rolling news or to put it another way learn about how to go beyond rolling news joining me on the podcast this week we have press gazette uk editor charlotte tobit hi charlotte hi dom good to be back and we're talking about how guy news are going moving beyond rolling news to become a kind of broader brand is that right yeah, so basically the reason we were thinking about them is they won News Provider of the Year at our British Journalism Awards in December. And lots of the reporting about Sky News we've done over the past year has involved their massive TikTok growth, everything they've been doing in Ukraine. We've previously done stuff on their growing data journalism. So there's a lot of like modernizing and investment that's been going on that was really good to hear more about. The last thing we wrote about Sky News, or one of the last things we wrote about Sky News, was how GB News had overtaken them in prime time, at least on a few occasions in December. So give me some Sky News stats, Charlotte. Oh, well, okay. Pretend I'm Richard Osman. I'm pointless with my laptop. Here are your stats. This is over the year for 2022. Sky News says it was up year on year across all the various platforms and combined it averaged 9.9 million users per day and that was 13% up year on year. Its daily reach made it the 10th most viewed TV channel in the UK. Its website and app, it had 40 million, 40 million monthly users. That was up 8% year on year. Interestingly, 37% of its online audience was from outside the UK. And then on podcasts, it was up 43% year on year in terms of listens and then tiktok we've just done a story about the fastest growing tiktok accounts and that showed that sky news was up 200 percent since last may although actually a lot of its sudden growth came late february early march when it was really well placed to give people quick updates about the outbreak of the Ukraine war. So it it suddenly got loads of new followers then. And that was at a time where lots of other UK news organisations were barely even thinking about TikTok or if they were thinking about it, they weren't really invested in it yet. Yes, sometimes broadcasters will get judged on what's going on in one particular programme. I know sometimes 
those viewing figures can sound a bit uninspiring. Like they can be in the tens of thousands, can't they, for one particular TV program looking at bar ratings. But there's a lot more to it than that, isn't there? And there's, that's just that's a bit like judging a, a newspaper on how one one or two stories do on the website. There's like a there's like a whole bunch of other things going on. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a much bigger picture than people really give it credit for. To be fair, you mentioned that GB News versus Sky News story. GB News and indeed the newer talk TV have used similar arguments themselves when people have criticised the size of their viewing figures and they've said, well, actually, we're concentrating a lot on growing our digital reach. You know, it's not just Sky News. It shows that overall, you can't just be a TV channel anymore. You've got to be reaching all sorts of different people or as many different people as you can across all these different platforms. And hopefully our conversation today will show some of the different ways that Sky News has done that. Yeah, great. It was great. And it was great for them to win that news provider of the year prior. Just for context, I think previous people who've won that have been like the FT, Sunday Times, Guardian. It's quite rare for a broadcaster to win it. I think they might, in fact, be the first broadcaster to win it at our event because British Journalism Awards really focuses on investigative journalism. But yeah, like you say, the reason Sky got it was because. I think mainly because they're amazing foreign coverage, which has just been incredible over the last year. But I digress. Who do we speak to then at Sky, Charlotte? So we speak to two of the very top dogs at Sky News, Director of Content Christina Nicolotti-Squires and Director of News Gathering Jonathan Levy. And I started by congratulating them on that News Provider of the Year win. Well, first of all, thank you to awarding us the award. And we were really pleased with it, actually. For many years, Sky has been regarded as a sort of television news service first. And to be, and we get awards on that basis, but to get awards for our digital consumption, which is really important to us now, and as a growing part of our business, was fantastic. And it was a great reward for what was an incredible year of news. I'm sure I'm a lot older than you, but in my 35 years in this business, I don't think I can look back on a year that was quite as busy. So it was tremendous to see all our hard work rewarded. And I just think, I think we did very well on a wide range of stories and they were a wide range of stories. Politics is our traditional hub and foreign news reporting is very strong for us. So Ukraine and the politics stories did well, but things like the cost of living were a challenge for us in terms of making sure we covered those kinds of stories and put people at the heart of that storytelling. So we were tested on a wide range of editorial journalism, I think. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It was very gratifying to win the award. And there were a number of very big stories this year. There's also a year where the news got really serious in the Mm. shape of the Ukraine war. And as Christina said, we're strong at politics traditionally. It was a big political year, prepared very well and very hard for the death of the Queen. But the Ukraine story, even... If we were talking this time last year, we wouldn't really have necessarily thought that story would be of the magnitude that it turned out to be. And I think most British news organisations rose to the challenge, but we certainly did. And it was very challenging and very difficult at times. But I'd say for me, that was a real hallmark of of how well we did last year, because that was a really tricky and difficult story. that took many twists and turns. And interestingly, the Ukraine story was one that our audiences Mm. were really engaged in more than perhaps I had estimated. And still. And still. And and I'm sure you'll pick up on it, but 
So we decided at the beginning of the year, and unlike the BBC, we decided at the beginning of the year we wanted to really push on on TikTok and our new service for TikTok. We decided not to get young people doing it, just to use our own journalism. And we just saw, I think over five days, this absolute massive increase of people subscribing. And there was a real fascination in, in, in a conflict in Europe amongst young people. And so I, th- I think that was a real driver for that for us. We now we're one of the fastest growing news brands on TikTok. And that was driven by mainly young people's interest in that war in Ukraine. Okay, since you've launched into Ukraine, I will just jump straight into that. A few things to pick up on, but firstly, since you've mentioned about digital consumption st- still being high, did you see appetite in and interest in the story drop off at any point or has it been strong the whole way or did it drop off a bit and you found a way to combat that and re-engage people? I've been, again, quite surprised by how the digital interest in Ukraine has really kept going. It may have been dipped a little bit between things like the Queen's death and her, the 10 days of mourning, perhaps because we didn't, obviously didn't put a huge amount of, you know, editorial resources were focused elsewhere. But we've been there every day since the war started. We've had somebody on the ground and we've been reporting it. And still now, our live blog on Ukraine, every day we do a live blog on what's going on and that is often in our top red articles. The videos still do incredibly well, both on our owned and operated platforms, but also on third-party social media. And one of the things we did very early on was explainer videos with people like Michael Clark explaining what the, with big maps, I'm sure you've probably seen them, explaining what the forces of both sides were doing on a particular given day or a particular battle over a particular strategic point. And those are still doing incredibly well on YouTube in particular. There is still a real appetite and fascination. And those audiences are not just in the UK, as Jonathan said, they are around the world. There's still a massive global interest in this conflict that is nearly a year old and ebbs and flows in terms of its sort of newsworthiness, if you like, but people are still interested in it and are still consuming it. I think it helps that it has, even though it has kind of niche and obscure elements and battles over towns that nobody's heard of that go on for a long time, the big narrative is very clear and people get it. Russia in Russia invading a European country that borders the EU. Putin's very familiar. Zelensky's become very familiar. So it has a very compelling narrative that people have been following. And of course, it's helped by the fact that the Ukrainian president's a compelling character who communicates very well, as I say, the familiarity of Putin. So even though it sometimes delves and diverts into some quite kind of niche and obscure battles over kind of towns in the east of the country the big narrative is one that i think people can relate to and care about and has some fantastically existential and powerful human elements all that big migration at the beginning lots of people could relate to that or could understand finding themselves in those circumstances maybe so it's a really compelling human story which caught people's attention, I think. So I'm not sure we could mention Sky News in Ukraine without mentioning, obviously, the attack on your team last year and Stuart Ramsey and his team. You mentioned that you've had someone in the in Ukraine every day since the war started, but after that attack, did you? how did you feel then? Did you consider completely changing your approach and pulling people out or you had to really stick to your guns, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, the kind of early days of war, kind of nascent days of conflict are in some ways the most perilous and unpredictable. War, wars are always difficult and dangerous to to cover. When, there's no stage at which you get complacent about that. 
But the beginning is particularly tricky because the front lines haven't hardened up. Nobody's quite sure what's what. Everyone's particularly edgy. And this happened really early. This was the, the, the fifth day of the war, I think. It was the war started in the early hours of a Thursday. And Stuart and his team were attacked, ambushed on the Monday. And they were very unfortunate. I mean, they were fortunate and that they had the wherewithal and the training that could help them get out of the situation. But they were unfortunate that this happened to them. And of course, it was a question of their the big priority was their welfare and getting them out. And of course, the welfare of all our other teams there. But I don't think anybody felt at one stage that, that we could not have a commitment to the story. Obviously, we thought long and hard about plenty of things in the aftermath of that incident. But there's all of us feel the story is absolutely vital as a news organization. And we've had a continuing commitment to it, as Christina has said. And why is that? It might seem really obvious, but why is it so important that you've made that commitment and also in particular sort of kept that commitment going almost a year later? Because it is a hugely vital story of of our times. It's it's war in Europe. Even saying it feels unbelievable, even nearly a year in, to, to think that the European country was invaded and the scenes and the implications of that are so considerable that that's what news organisations like ours are there to do. It's uh, also really important, I think, to be there on the yeah. ground. All wars are wars of information and you can't cover a war. There's, you get some interesting and useful material out of other people's UGC and people shooting their own material on the ground, but it's only by actually going there and finding stuff out. And that's what we've done. Deborah Hayden's discovered that there have been horrendous rape crimes been committed in, in I think it's Butcher, wasn't it? Yeah. And it's only by being on the ground and getting your own independent eyewitness journalism that you can report that story. And as Jonathan said, it's, this is, it's the Cold War again. It's Russia invading a European country. Where does that end? Where does that stop? What implications does that have to the world order? What Look at the knock-ons on fuel prices, on the energy crisis, on food prices. It's a really important story. And some stories, I think one of, one of my colleagues once said, there's no story that's worth risking your life for, but there are some stories that you, have, you just have to tell, whatever the risks. And the commitment to telling it, the commitment to eyewitness journalism on a story like to separate some news organisations from others. I mean, there's we're one of a handful of news organisations in the UK that have made that commitment. And as Christina says, it's not about talking about this stuff. So going and seeing it for yourself and being able to have your own eyes on it and not just accepting the narratives that are provided by the participants, it really matters. And it, it sets some news organisations out from others. Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers, and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.
You mentioned previously, obviously, about how it's also been a crazy year for news stories in the UK. I just wanted to touch on politics because it's such a big part of what you do as well. I think a key question maybe is when there's so much going on, like there has been, how do you make sure that you're an agenda setter in in journalism rather than just chasing the latest, oh, Boris Johnson's done this, Liz Truss has done this. Obviously, you have broken lots of stories. So how do you make sure you're at the forefront of that? Yeah, we're very proud of our team in Westminster. We've invested a lot in politics. So over the years, it's always been a huge part of the Sky News proposition, going back to the very early days and when Adam Bolton founded the political unit. So it's always been a really important part of the the proposition. We have a big political team that with very much different strengths. I mean, I think our big thing on lots of stuff is being as transparent and as communicating and translating what's going on in Westminster in the simplest terms. And that's using all the tools available to us. So just one example of that, which I think caught people's attention and then was imitated by other news organisations was our minister resignation bug back in the day when those few days where Boris Johnson was clinging on in number 10 and every few minutes it would seem a member of his government would resign and we put that on telly as a kind of bug that ticked up every time it happened it's a simple thing but that's very much our approach that's the way we try to think about all stories and I talked about earlier us being a a video-led news organization I think it's more than that actually we're visual-led we like to think of different ways of visualizing stories and communicating to audiences in in that way. Having, and on top of that, as I say, having a team that is plugged in all over it, but plugged into the right things as well. I used to work in Westminster some time ago, over 10 years ago, as part of Sky's political team, looking after Sky's political team. And you, it's very easy to get diverted to the, by the ins and the outs and the kind of smaller things and the gossip. I think you've always got to be trying to bring it out and translate politics into the things that 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 matter to people and have an implication for I think that's where we when we're at our best that's what we do very well it's really important that we report politics not just about the shenanigans that's mm. going on but how it's affecting people we have a people and politics correspondent Nick Martin he's based outside London he's done some very powerful films over the year on things like the cost of living crisis recently he spoke to a nurse to explain why she was going on strike so Politics is, yes, there's a bit of the sort of pell-mell excitement of ministers resigning and prime ministers resigning and the Downing Street lectern comes out. But there's also, and we're really, it's a really important part of Sky News. We put people at the heart of our storytelling and the effect of politics on people is a really big part of our coverage. It's not a parlour game, I think. That's the point. It's very easy to, to be poured into that. And I think that's a strength of our team of Beth Rigby. She's always standing back and having a look and trying to give it a kind of real person take in a way. And she communicates that very effectively, I think. Doing another neat segue, one way that you're obviously telling that story differently now Mm. is on TikTok, as you already mentioned. You mentioned about how quickly you've grown and one of the biggest news providers on TikTok already. Were you surprised by how quickly you you grew on? In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. I was surprised at the speed of which, and I think that was propelled during those first few or four days of the invasion of Ukraine, when we were literally putting on dozens and dozens of subscribers by the, I think it went for something like 500,000 to over a million in literally four days. We also took a very distinct route, which I think was different from other people in that we didn't hire a young funky person to give you a TikTok version of the news. We're very true to our values and 
I remember an explainer by a rather, I'm sure you say this, a sort of middle-aged science correspondent on COVID, the new variant. I can't remember if it was Omnicrom or whichever one it was. I can't remember the exact number, but got an incredible number of views. There is a real appetite for young people for news. It's all about finding where they want to consume it. And so I think that, yeah, making getting those numbers on TikTok, I'm not terribly surprised because, as I said, young people, and I, I happen to, to live with a couple, but I'm sure many of us know plenty of young people. Young people are really interested in what goes on in the world around them, even more so now, I think, than in 20 years ago because they've all got phones and they've all got access to information from around the world. And they're looking for they're looking for the truth. They all know that an awful lot of what's on social media is either fake news or made up or not necessarily accurate. And they want trusted they want to find sources of trusted information. So surprised pleasantly in sort of the rate of escalation, but not surprised by the escalation itself. I wanted to mention your data team. I understand last year or years, I'm not sure, you've invested a bit in that. I wonder if you could talk about the advantage of that and what you've been doing a bit differently. Yeah, about it was before the pandemic, so I think it was probably about three or four years ago, we experimented with hiring a data journalist to see what it would deliver. And it soon became very apparent that actually this was a real world, which I had a hunch about, but it was a real world that we could get great stories from by delving into the numbers. But yeah, it crucially gives you context in so many different things. And then obviously the pandemic came along and suddenly we're all terribly into charts and data and public information, publicly available information. And and we just had the opportunity. Sky News is extremely fortunate in that it has really strong backers in Sky and by Comcast. And so our finances are enabling us to invest in our journalism rather than contract, which I think sadly is the case in lots of other areas. And this is an area we've decided to invest and expand in and has paid off so far. We, you know, we uncover all sorts of stories. It gives us interactivity. So you can have a tool on our app to find out how bad delays are in your particular hospital. It helps us establish the context of a story very often. Actually, the government may tell you that they're levelling up, but where is the money actually going? And using, using, as I said, publicly available data, but bringing it together and using it to give analysis and context to stories and actually quite often delivering stories. And then the other thing we've done is we've, called, we've put them together, we've called them a data and forensic unit. Forensic journalism, again, is an area that I think is really growing. Again, there's this huge amount of publicly available OSINT material, they call it, open source intelligence, whether it's satellite maps, whether it's plane routes across the Atlantic or from one city to another. There's a huge amount of information that can be used to piece together things. And if journalism is about as I believe, it's shining a light on the stuff people don't want you to shine a light on. Wow, forensic journalism is a really powerful tool. So we've used it to do a lot of reporting about what's going on in Iran and how many and looking at using satellite images to see what was a story we did recently about a movement of aircraft with, with materials into and out of Ukraine. So it's been a really powerful new form of journalism for us. Are there any other sort of new roles that you have that maybe you didn't a few years ago that have, have made a big difference as well? Well, yeah, I mean, we dipped our toe in the podcast world probably about six or seven years ago. And again, I hired a couple of people about five years ago, and that team has now expanded to 20 odd. And we are producing more podcasts with much higher, like last year, I think we had like 15.2 million listens and a 43% increase in consumption. I think what's really interesting is that we're now living in a world, Sky is a very much a multi-platform news organization. And I think most news organizations try to be. 
And it's just, I just think it's, people say that people try and avoid the news, it's all too depressing, but I, that's not reflecting what I've seen last year on every level, on tele, on, on video views, on audio listens and on and read reading time and written word. I think the consumption is just increasing. And I think it's any news organisation just needs to make sure that they've always got their eyes on the horizon and seeing what's going to be the next platform, what's going to be the next. On demand is a big growing area for all news organisations, whether it's video on demand or audio on demand. So there's always something coming along. That's great. As I said, I've been in this business a very long time. I think it's fascinating that there's always new ways of doing things. Also, the genres change, Charlotte. Like Ed Conway was our economics editor. He's now our economics and data editor, which reflects the importance of data. We have a data and forensic correspondent. We've always had people looking at the environment, but now we have a climate change correspondent, which of course reflects the absolute kind of importance and salience of that issue. So I think as well as different kind of functions that relate to platforms and news gathering practices and production practices, you've also got to constantly be evolving and refreshing what your journalistic focus is as well. You don't stand still there either because as the world changes, you need to be looking at different bits of it in different ways. And so at conferences and surveys and things over the past year, it was interesting to hear what you just said, Christina, about consumption rising because other news leaders seem to be a bit worried about this issue of news avoidance. So is that not something you're worried about or do you think maybe it could have been a problem, but all all of these modernising things you're doing are helping? I think we help that people who turn to Sky News because they're into news, okay? You don't turn on Sky News if you really don't, you don't put on Sky News if you're not interested in news. I think the news avoidance thing is a bit of a, I don't know, I'm not sure how rooted it is in actual data as opposed to surveys. We can all say, oh, I don't like watching the news and then we're all drawn to it. It's a bit like people who slow down at car crashes. They would never admit to it, but they still slow down and take a look. And as I said, last year was the busiest period of news that I've known in my career. And on every single platform, our audience has increased. We became the 10th most watched channel on on TV in the country last year. We had 40 million users of people on our web and app, which was up 8%. The news exploded last year and so did our audiences. So I'm not really sure about news avoidance. When big stuff happens, people want to find out about it. They don't really, they may say they don't, they want to shy away from it, but I've not seen that from my own experience. And what changes is where they want to find it, which is why we're... They may not go and buy a newspaper. They, but they want to read about it on their phone or so, they might not turn on the telly on the wall, but they'll watch it on YouTube or something. Yeah, and no, nothing in the past year, which has been the most momentous year of news that many of us can remember, suggests that people want to avoid it, but they do want to they do want to get it on the at the time and on the device and on the screen that they want to at that moment in time. So I think it's more of a case of making sure you're serving the audiences and the consumers wherever they are. I think that's much more of a thing to grapple with and potential news avoidance. As Christina says, I see very little evidence of of that when the news is significant. Yeah, well, that's obviously very reassuring. And, and as you're saying, instead, they might not be turning on Sky News, but people that wouldn't do that might be going to the channel on TikTok. So. Exactly. <laughs> Great. Looking forward, having gone through this momentous year of news and invested in several areas, what are your priorities for the newsroom going to be this year, do you think? I think we'll have to work a bit harder for our audiences. I think that's the message I've been giving people. I don't think I'm giving any secrets away by saying that. Last year was a year of tumultuous events. One could never predict the future and anyone who tries to is a bit foolish, but I think that there would be quite so many things falling into our lap in, in that respect. 
I think that it's going to be a year of almost preparation for 24. It's going to be obviously an American election and a UK election probably in 24. So I think politics may be on a day-to-day basis less volatile, but I think it's a bit like a tricky current at sea. Mm. I think it can appear smooth on the top and perhaps a bit choppier underneath. Yeah, I know that at the moment it feels much less kinetic than the previous years. It feels since 2016, since we had the the Brexit referendum that then went into the whole kind of grappling with how that was delivered, Trump ultimately into to the kind of pandemic and then into the war in Ukraine, and of course the big royal story last year. It does feel that 2024 has the potential to be less kinetic, a bit more considered, not quieter, that's not how I'd describe it at all, no. but a slightly different pace. Which is good because it gives you more opportunity yeah. to to put your resources on original journalism yeah. and actually thinking about, okay, what are the kinds of stories that we know? We've got all these new people tasting Sky News for the first time. How do we keep them interested in going? Yeah, I think that then Christina and I are on this in our different ways e- each day. It is over the past few years and certainly last year, you were waking up or you were spending, you know, you'd wake up and you'd think, I wonder how our broadcast rivals did this story or how are our online digital rivals doing this story a story be it ukraine be it the politics be it the royal story now actually you're looking back at the different things that people are doing or the different things that are going on in the podcast world or in the digital world so at the moment it feels like 2024 it is more of a question of finding different stories and that being a more competitive space 2023 i don't know why i keep on saying 2024 <laughs> he's I'm ahead of himself as always i'm a year ahead because so, <laughs> christina mentioned 2024 stuck in my mind 2023 talking about 2023 feels like it, it's much more of a a year of really falling back on our ability to generate original stories yeah we made a very good start to that with our westminster accounts project we've got some very exciting stuff coming up looking at the nhs and we've invested very heavily in in original journalism. And I hope in 2023, we'll see the fruits of that investment. Thanks for that, Charlotte. Great interview. What do you think other news brands can, can learn then from the success of Sky News? So I think it's in part an outlet, like I was saying before, that it's not just about being one thing anymore. They're not just a TV broadcaster, but they're strong on TikTok and YouTube and their website and their app, and they all offer different things. Obviously, they're lucky in many ways that they have a different financial story to many news providers. So parent company Comcast has pledged to maintain funding for Sky News until 2028. That's 10 years from its 2018 acquisition. But obviously we heard about some of the investment they've been putting into the newsroom. So it's really good to hear how they're using that sort of certainty for now to do that and do some experimenting and see what works. And I hope that they're right and they do get to showcase some of what that investment has done with plenty of original journalism and off diary stuff in 2023. But I really just wanted to mention about how they mentioned that they're really not worried about news avoidance. That's really heartening. We've heard it's become a big topic of conversation among other news leaders over the past six months to a year. But Christina and Jonathan said to them, the appetite's just been 
growing in 2022. Obviously, it was a massive news year, but they just believe that you simply need to be in the right places with the right type of content. And on TikTok, for example, you don't need to hire some new young people. You can use your established experts. Well, thanks for that, Charlotte. And like you say, it's heartening that they at least are not too concerned about news avoidance, because I think it's a major worry for some of the some of the big news providers. People are turning off. It's great to see here that like the Sky News is still got that passionate audience. So you've been listening to The Future of Media Explained with me, Dominic Ponsford, and Press Gazette UK editor, Charlotte Tobit, expertly produced, as always, by Adrian Bradley. If you'd like to read more about this story and about others that we cover in the world of media, Check out our website, pressgazette.co.uk, and sign up to our newsletters. Thanks very much for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.